This show is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Charleston Coffee Roasters. Charleston Coffee Roasters painstakingly searches the world over for the highest quality coffee beans. They bring them home to Charleston, South Carolina, where slow roasting coaxes out their unique flavor. Along with their promise of great coffee, Charleston Coffee Roasters also pledges to help our planet and local communities. Globally, they support sustainable farming practices. Locally, they partner with the South Carolina Sea Turtle Rescue Program. Visit their website, charlestoncoffeeroasters.com, and use the code COFFEEWITHFRIENDS, all lowercase, all one word, to get 20% off on all bagged coffees. Well, I just want to say that we weren't friends at that party. That's where we had met. That is yeah. crazy. We met then. Megan and I were not sure about each other. In fact, I don't think we were going to be friends. We had lunch with our editor and her assistant editor or dinner after the party. And we both walked away like, mm, we were both like not, not. It's like, oh, she's so effortless. I don't even understand this woman. But then I ended up going to Hawaii. I think it was a month later because my now mother-in-law was getting married. So we went to this thing and I thought, well, I hear Jane Porter's there. It was like over Thanksgiving, right? I think so. It was after. And you said, oh, yeah, like we should have dinner or something. So we had dinner and then we really got along then. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. On this episode, we're chatting with bestselling authors Jane Porter and Megan Crane, two longtime friends who also happen to be incredibly prolific best-selling authors. We'll be talking about friendship and publishing, something that we here at Friends in Fiction know quite a bit about, and also about how both of these women have managed to write so very many best-selling books over the course of their careers. I'm tired just hearing the numbers. <laughs> they have something pretty interesting in common, too, with our own Kristen Harmel that I heard about, so we're going to chat about that as well. We're thrilled to have them on today. I am Ron Block. And I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm so excited to introduce Jane and Megan to the Friends in Fiction community. Though truth be told, I bet a lot of you already know them. So Jane's the New York Times bestselling author of more than 75 romance and women's fiction novels. Uh, with wow. more than 15 million copies of her books in print, she's a six-time Rita Award finalist. She's also the author of Flirting with 40, which became a lifetime movie starring Heather Locklear. 
Megan Crane, who writes under both her own name and the pen name Caitlin Cruz, is the USA Today best-selling author of well over 100 books. Yeah, you heard me right, well over 100. She's written romance, women's fiction, and chiclet about cowboys, military heroes, futuristic Vikings, outlaw bikers, and fairy tale princes, just to name a few. She has a master's and a PhD in English literature. She and Jane have been friends for years. Both live on the West Coast, with Jane in California and Megan up in the Pacific Northwest. They both have incredible husbands. Jane's is a surfer, Megan's is a comic book artist, and Jane also has three sons. Ladies, welcome. We are so glad you're here with us today. Thank you so much for having us. Welcome. Yes, we uh, go back a long way, the three of us. We we do. Well, now, when Kristen first suggested having the two of you on the podcast, my immediate thought was, oh, what a great idea, books and friendship. What could be better? But what I didn't realize was how long the three of you actually had known each other. Can someone tell me a little bit about that so I'm brought up to speed and how you all met Kristen? Jane, why don't you start us off? Well, I think we all had the same editor. Didn't we all have Karen? So I, I think we all had Karen Kostolnik at Grand Central. You didn't, I, Kristen? I actually had Amy Einhorn. So we were, but we were all right. part of the launch of the same imprint. But I did have Karen yeah, later. So yes, met. in a roundabout way, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I just know we were all part of a launch for the imprint. And there was a party in New York, a launch party. and For the five spot imprint for all you history buffs. <laughs> you guys better tell this better than I do because I, I think it's, it's, an interesting part of publishing how imprints come up imprints go mm-hmm. editors move houses and yet we all met at this one point and for me it was such a, a big shift from romance to trade that these new friendships for me were really exciting and important because when i was not just writing category then i didn't ha- i didn't know anyone so both kristen and megan were some of my first friends in a different area of publishing mm-hmm. Yeah, so the five spine imprint, I guess, you know, Chicklet was a big deal. They'd call them rom-coms today. But Chicklet was a really big deal then, and they decided to make an imprint of only Chicklet books. That was my second book for Warner Books at the time. And, I, you know, I thought Jane was so fancy because it was like her, I don't even know, 50th book or something. Oh, she's so <laughs> multi-published. I'll never, I'll never get there. And Kristen, I don't remember what number book that was for you, but I do. I distinctly Zero, remember being was... both of you at that party. That was yeah. my first. That was my first. That's so great. Isn't that crazy? So I, you know, I have to say that meeting you two at that party for the launch of the five spot imprint back in mm-hmm. two, that was 2005, I think. It was. It really was? Mean, oh, 2004, 2004 or 2005. It was a long time ago. I think it was um, 2005. It, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was, it was really meaningful to me because you had both already been published. Megan, like you said, I was in awe of Jane, but I had read your, your first book, Megan. And I I just, oh my gosh, I, I felt very intimidated. I was sort of this deer in the headlights baby who had no idea what she was getting herself into. But from moment one, you both, isn't that crazy? But you know, you both treated me like an equal and you both took me under your wings a little bit. And I honestly have never forgotten that. So since that extension of your friendship meant so much to me, and since I know that the friendship you two share has carried your, you both through so much over the years, can you talk a little bit about why friendship matters so much in a career like this? How about you, Megan? Do you want to Well, I just want to say that we weren't friends at that party. That's where we had met. That is yeah. crazy. We all we met then. Megan and I were not sure about each other. In fact, I don't think we were going to be friends. 
we had lunch with our editor and her assistant editor or dinner after the party. And we both walked away like, mm, we were both like, not, not. It's like, oh, she's so effortless. I don't even understand this woman. But then I ended up going to Hawaii uh, about a month later. Yeah, I think it was a month later because my now mother-in-law was getting married. And I, and so we went to this thing and I thought, well, I, I hear Jane Porter's there. It was like over Thanksgiving. Uh, right. I think so. It was after. And you said, oh yeah, like we should have dinner or something. So we had dinner and then we really got along then. And then I read all her presents in the space of between like that meeting and then the following summer. And then was of course obsessed with her writing. And I, my editor had sent me her first book, which was not the one that was coming out in the five spots. So the, I, what was the name of that one? It was that wonderful. I think her name is Holly. Yeah. The frog prince. Oh, it was so oh, magical. Yes! Yeah. I loved that mm-hmm. book. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, Kristen, the friendship aspect to me has been interesting because when I started in c- category romance, Harlequins, that, in a, whether you want to say in a good or bad way, it has dogged me from the beginning because it didn't matter how serious any book I ever wrote was. It's always Jane Porter, her Harlequin Roots show. Her category romance voice is there. Jane, who started in, they, it's almost like the media or reviewers have to kind of downgrade one. So for me, having a friend like Megan, who was doing both, was really important. And also Megan, you know, having a PhD in in lit and being as, you know, she's East Coast smart, um, articulate in a way I'm not. I kind of get a little bit baffled I sometimes like the, I don't want to call it the mean girlness in the, in the media, but towards romance. And so I have chosen, I've written women's fiction and I, I got to a point where writing some of the stories made me sad. I've had a lot of sad things in my life. So writing a more serious, somber story, I can do it, but I would call Megan and say, I'm, I'm really sad. I don't like this. I prefer romance. And yet people wanted the more serious from me to the point I thought, if I'm going to write, I'm going to write the stories that make me feel good and make other women who probably have a similar background as me. If you've been through really painful things, if you've had tragedies, you almost reading about pain or suffering, it's not, it, it doesn't always feel good. It brings up that pain. So for me, writing romance allows, it's a little more cathartic. It's a little more healing and redemptive. So Megan was always so important to me, like kind of like steering me towards who I was and not who the world said you should maybe do or what critics. And I think the most important part of the friendship was her ability to be straight with me, honest and say, you have to do what's best for you. And that's what's kept, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm all about Megan Crane because she has saved me so many times because this shouldn't be about what other people think. We should do what we want because we enjoy it. That's such a good point. Do you think that you would have gotten to that point without that nudge from her? It, in other words, it, it, to me, it sounds like what you're saying is it wasn't just career growth and career support, but really personal growth and personal support, too. I mean, was that really a, a result of the direct? That's exactly. I, I've made choices in life that I have not been able to tell anyone else because of, of, of still judging women, judging women, women thinking we we are going to play a kind of a heavy part and we're going to decide for relationships what's best. And Megan has never, ever, ever judged. And I think that very few friends have true friends who will not judge at some level. 
And I knew I could tell her whatever I needed to tell her what was going on. And she'd always say, you don't have to decide now. And you will know when you need to make a decision. And at that point, you can make a decision, whereas so many people want to start telling you what to do. And so I think that by allowing me to be me in my life and um, take ownership, that that probably impacted my writing. But I do think the two are, for me, are so intermixed. And and there's such gratitude. My career, I always used to joke when I was doing workshops, I referenced Megan so many times. I keep waiting for her to say, take my name out of your mouth because it's a natural. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jane's why I started writing romance because I was writing chiclet books. And at one point she said, and I don't really, in in retrospect, I don't, I know she knows what story I'm going to tell. In retrospect, I don't remember how we got from eyeing each other across a table in the meatpacking (laughs) district in New York to this like sort of radical honesty that I think characterizes our relationship, but she, she was on the phone. I remember exactly where I was standing in my apartment in LA at the time. And I was like, Oh, I just don't know. I need to try this. She said, "Mm, I wonder what would happen if you tried, mm, I don't know, using emotion in your books. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) And then I thought I'm going to write a presents and I never looked back. (laughs) And uh, there was a kind of a telling versus like living, living it inside. And I just kept thinking, Every piece is there. I just want more, like of the heart to bleed through. And then she, once she nailed it, like I, like she is one of my favorite authors. But because she has the pacing, she has the storytelling, she has all the skills, and she makes me care so much for her characters. But I am probably ruthless in that way, and maybe that's why I don't have more friends. A lot of people don't want that, but Megan, <laughs> Megan took it, so I don't know. I know, right? I maybe that was when we we became real friends. <laughs> I love that, though. I mean, you've helped each other grow as both people and writers. I think we all need friends like that. That's that's incredible. It's, it's really touching to me, too, because I think it's a kind of friendship that not everybody gets to experience in their life, but we all want it. And I just it's you, it's so obvious to see the two of you and hear you talk about each other that the bond is there. Now, your friendship has gone beyond that, too, into publishing. So you have Tuli Publishing Productions. Can you talk about all that and how that came about? You know, I wanted to work with Megan and Carla, CJ Carmichael. I had friends. We wanted to do a story together. And we were writing for Harlequin, all for different arms of Harlequin or imprints. And I just know from my end, I was going through different things and I wanted to do something with friends. Again, it comes back to that friendship. And I knew CJ Carmichael before we got published. And um, we had another friend who's Australian, Lillian Darcy, who's very respected author and in Australia and written over a hundred Harlequins and many awards. And so we, it was just a chance to work together. Megan, I mean, what was it for you? I mean, no, it was like the typical thing, Jane, who at different parts of my life has been like, you know, Hey, let's do this. Let's do it. Let's go to Italy for a writing course. Sure. Let's, you know, Hey, would you like to come to Hawaii? Yes. And then she was like, would you like to come to Montana? Because CJ Carmichael has a little cabin on Flathead Lake. Would you like to come to Montana and write connected stories? Because this is when self-publishing things had just started. I was like, we can put them out ourselves. And I'd never written any sort of cowboy book about, but I was like, sure, why not? And pretty much when Jane says, would you like to do something? The answer is yes. I say yes before I even know what it is. <laughs> and then it turned into, of course, a publishing, an entire publishing company. Because she wasn't, she wasn't like, she could never be satisfied with just putting some books out. She had to build an entire <laughs> publishing company. And now she makes movies and she does all sorts of things. 
Well, that was my next question. No, I was going to say that's it. I I don't know when to stop. So she is not <laughs> a small dreamer. <laughs> I love that. This is wonderful, wonderful. But you know, let's talk about the film production. So it's a big piece of the mission, and production has worked on at least, is it 10 movies? Well, we've is had 10 made, and we have just, I got, an, I, I was optioned a, a new book of one of mine for another network, and they're going to be pushing it forward. But beyond that, I, I we have like probably two for this Christmas. I have the networks until they name them, don't like you know, because they like to do their own announcing. But we probably have another eight that have been scripted that they have. Wow. So we've got quite a bit moving forward. And so I know my new one that they've just optioned is probably going to be for 2023 holidays or 2024. But it became because, like Megan said, you know, when digital started, it was like, oh, let's go do this. Well, digital is very flooded. It's very hard to to be found. And so as a small digital company, we were saying we need, you know, every sub right so authors can earn audio. And then um, film was a natural for me. I just went to UCLA's Theater Arts and we live near L.A. So I've enjoyed the film aspect and I do all the pitching for film. Uh, we have an entertainment attorney who does the, the contracts. But so far, everything's been made because I just I keep shaking it down. In fact, I woke up this morning at five and I thought, you know, Game of Brides, I should go back as the new Hallmark, the stories they're doing now, that might be an interesting fit. And I think rather than think about writing my own books, I think, <laughs> what can I do so I don't have to write today? And I can do that. <laughs> so you, you procrastinate your way into a movie. I, I, I mean, I wish I could do that. I just procrastinate <laughs> my way into a longer to-do list. I think creativity is interesting, though. And I think in our business, sometimes creativity to me gets squished into like only one channel. You're supposed to just be a writer and just keep writing. But a lot of us have so much creativity. I like this podcast that Kristen does is, is incredible. And I, I think there's so much to us as women. So I just love being able to tap on all of our different strengths that we've acquired. Mm -hmm. uh, two people that I would love to have on my side at all times right here. <laughs> <laughs> No kidding. Uh, so that's that's incredible. Everything that you've accomplished with that. It's uh, it's just it's it's been amazing to watch both of your careers, you know, since the time we met in 2005, which I can't believe how much time has passed since then. But switching tracks a bit to your individual careers. Here's the part of the podcast where I admit that I feel like a giant slacker compared to the two of you. Which, right, that's um, exactly how anyone would describe you, Kristen. But I mean, yeah. seriously, look at you. Like, I mean, Jane says she doesn't want to work on a book, so she just pitches a film. I don't want to work on a book, and I paint my toenails a different color and accomplish nothing. I mean, you know, I, I, I need a little bit more of what you're doing. So my first novel came out in February 2006 as part of that five-spot launch. And even if we count generously, including work-for-hire projects, novellas, and the book that hasn't come out yet, I have at most 18 books to my name, which I used to think was pretty good until, you know, a couple days ago when I started looking at how many books you'd written. But between the two of you in basically the exact same time period, You've produced, I believe, more than 200 books together. So the real reason we had to have you on the podcast was so that I could just ask you, how? How do I do it? <laughs> so Megan, since you seem to publish a book about as frequently as I go to the grocery store, um, and I say that with <laughs> jealousy and endless admiration, would you like to go first? 
Well, I, you know, you have a deadline, so you write the book. Um, that's that's how I write them. But uh, do you actually want to know how I specifically write them? I'm just curious. I mean, you- no. So a few years ago, I, actually, it's quite a few years ago now. I was trying to write a book, and I kept writing the same, you know, opening chapters over and over and over again, which is never a good sign. And I realized I was going to miss the deadline. And for me, if I miss the deadline, that is a domino effect that would ruin everything. So that what I couldn't do it. So I was, you know, hyperventilating on the floor. And then I figured out that I had to teach myself how to dictate. Because the thing about dictation, even though it is, it just it doesn't feel right. The the switch from typing to dictating feels the same as longhand writing to typing. You know, you you just feel like your brain doesn't quite catch up and it doesn't feel right. And you have to, you're hearing yourself, which is horrifying. But once you get it, the amount of words you can produce jumps significantly. So as someone who went from having very tight first drafts, because I would go over and do the same thing over and over and over and over again. Um, and I did that until I just really, it wasn't serving me anymore. I couldn't do it anymore because I couldn't move forward to have these like really messy dictation things that I have to fix. I mean, that I'm finding that hard to deal with, but so that's what I do. I dictate. So I actually can write a lot of words pretty quickly and then I clean them up and sort of move forward that way. So that's like, that is the actual, how I do it is I dictate a lot. That's incredible. Also, you know, panic, fear, and my bank account. That's pretty much how I write. I mean, that's what drives me as well. It just drives me apparently much more slowly. That's really interesting. Jane, do you, um, do you use dictation software also? I do. I'm not as good. I'm not as good at it. And I think Years ago, I, I, when I was a little girl, my family had us do all these Johnson O'Connor or O'Connell human engineering tests. And I have, I'm not high on Ideaphoria. I am really good at following a project through to the end till death do us apart. And so to be honest, I will dictate, but I often struggle with repeating almost a similar scene, not realizing until it's over. I've actually done something similar. I've done this. I, but my trouble is I often don't know exactly what I need to do. And so I am not, for one, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not as talented as you guys. I think I'm just a dog with a bone and I, I just mm-hmm. keep fighting for that bone. But I, Megan's again been big in helping me remind me to the things I need to do when I'm struggling. And I think we should. Well, look, the thing is, you have to get the book written, right? So if you're not getting the book written, then you're not. So how do you, then you, you can lie down and cry about it, which I've certainly done, do a lot of, I (laughs) I spend a lot of time crying on my floor. Um, But it, but you need to get the book done because that at the end of the day, all, all roads lead to having to get that book done. Right. Because even when it's not finished, you don't even know what the book is till it's finished. So how are you going to, so for me, it's like, well, let's get it finished as quickly as possible. So I can at least have a conversation. Like if I want to talk about how terrible the book is, I should finish it first. So I can really know how bad. <laughs> right. But because we all know that when you're about 75% into a book, you've never written a worse book and you're never going to finish this book and this mountain will be the one that kills you, so on and so forth. But that is a dark hole that bears no resemblance to reality. It doesn't matter how many books you've written, you're always going to feel that way. So the only solution that I know of is to finish the freaking thing. And then amazingly, you hand it in, it comes back from your editor with suggestions for revision. You're like, what? But I've never written a better book. I never have my words been more vibrant or, you know, so basically I feel like we're not good judges of our own work. Sometimes I feel like the creative process 
it's kind of opening a door to the characters or the scenes and just sort of letting it all happen. And I don't know that your emotions while it's going on really have anything to do with anything except a pro like what you feel in the process of writing has no, it bears no resemblance to what your reader is going to read or even how you're going to feel about it when it's done. So again, just like get it done. That's my, so that's what I think. That is always my advice to Jane. That's, yeah, it's endlessly fascinating. It, it is. And it's so interesting to hear you say that also about hitting the 75% mark and thinking, this is the worst thing I've ever written. I can't possibly finish ever. because that happens to me every single time too. It's like, mm-hmm. it, it is a part of the process. Yeah, you know, I wanted to ask the soul. Yeah, it, it really is it, exactly where it's supposed to mm-hmm. fall in the script too. Right. The, the script of our uh, novel writing lives. Circling back Do you to still you outline, saying, Christian? I was just going to ask you that. I outline um, absolutely. My outlines are like twenty thousand. I would rather words die. Long. I would rather die. Okay, so I was going to ask you that. How then? Uh, your brain just must work very differently than mine. If you're able to sit down and dictate a novel that comes to you as you're working, I need to know the exact shape of it. And then, you know, I, I kind of meander here and there within that shape that I've established. But I, I need to know the shape before I Well, you're I talking about, okay, but you write historical fiction. So I'm, I write a lot of category romance. So I know the shape of the book. The question is, how am I going to play with that shape? I mean, to me, the joy of category romance, well, you know, so if people don't know what that is on this podcast, I don't know. But that's like Harlequin Presents, the ones that, you know, you see every month. And they all have very similar looking covers. But so you already know the shape. So for me, I, the joy of it is getting to play with the, not the shape, but what happens within those shapes. So that, so that's very different from the kind of books that you write, Kristen, that are so involved. And so like involve all these different, I mean, the, the tunnels you must go down into research and so on. I mean, that's just, that's very different from what I'm doing, you know? So it, it, it so in that sense, it's easier to write more quickly because I know that the Harlequin Presents has a very specific structure. The readers want a very specific structure. Jane and I used to call it that presents punch at the end where you're writing towards a thing and then you just like rip their heart out and then boom, you're done. But like, there's something that I've developed called the category dragon. Cause it's kind of shaped like that. You sort of go up and up and up and then boom for the punch. And then you finish to the end. And the shape of that looks like a dragon. And that's how you write category in a more involved book. I think I might stop along the way and kind of figure out where I'm going or I have more of an idea, more of a map. I don't, I might have a little map, but I don't like a, I don't like a serious outline. I know that you've always been a big fan of outlines and I've always been amazed by that. Cause I feel like I'd already told myself the story. <laughs> that's, that's so interesting. It's so interesting to me how, how differently we all write. I think for every writer in the world, you know, we all have a slightly different process to get to basically the same end goal. How about you, Jane? Do you ever outline or are you? I still write in many ways by pictures in my head, which I always think is interesting. I, I kind of write by seeing parts of a movie. So I write out of order and I don't, I know what the ending needs to see, feel like as well. I know what the emotional art kind of need to be. And so I don't outline for the most part, but I, I know where I'm going to need to hit the, the most, the dark moments. So I almost write to the dark moments. And as I'm heading there, I often stop. I'll write my ending. I write backwards and then I write back forwards because I'm an, I'm an emotional writer. And that's kind of my trademark um, that kind of, and especially as I've been writing about women who are, you know, 47 and 50 and 58, there's certain things as you mature that you're afraid I will never have now, um, if you didn't have certain things. And 
So for me, it's, it's again, that those emotional turning points. So I love the idea of outlining, but the more I sometimes outline, the, the less I go there. There's this weird magnet resistance. But I will say, because I think your books are, are dependent on historical, some to a degree of accuracy and research, your framework requires a lot of building first oh, yeah. and building out. And so you can't, you can't do, you know, four or five of these a year. There's just no way. Whereas many of mine, if I'm writing a series, it's almost like you wrap up one and I can roll into the next story. And mm-hmm. so I've already done the world building with book one. Yeah. And we've met uh, the secondary character or the third. And so I can just continue that world building into the next, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. why I like series. And it's why even with Thule, all of mine, say my cowboy brothers or this ranch family, once you've established a family, I love, it's like binge watching TV. I get a return to them. Yeah. And I, I have the old Maverick grandfather who I get to see again and my readers like. So I think I've learned to lean into my strengths, which is build out something and keep playing in that world until I've tapped it out and then build another and keep playing in that world. And I can be more prolific that way. But if I were to have to create a whole new original world each time, often like Megan does with her, her books, I, cause she'll have her series. And then she has, um, sometimes her, her Harlequins are, if not a standalone, they're duets and things, but she's has enormous pressure on her to constantly come up with something new. And I don't have a lot of new. I have a 58-year-old brain that I'm trying to make feel young. I wish they had Geritol on the market because I certainly need some. (laughs) I think that that's what we as writers do. We each have our own way to write, and there's not a right way or a wrong way as long as we get that book done. I will say, though, that I think a lot of writers feel like because they had a certain process at one point in their career, that's it. It never changes as if the process is a concrete block that you're forced to struggle around carrying forever. And I just I think that's that that I think trips people up. And now I've got lost my own metaphor there. But like I I think that you have to let go of that because it's whatever serves the story and it's whatever serves getting the books done. And if you, the more elastic you can be with that, like you, you, you are your process. You're in charge of your process. You can change it. You know, I think that is, you know, the process for me changed dramatically with, with menopause. I, my brain changed wildly and I poor Megan, I'm 10 years older than her or so I would complain bitterly about how my brain wasn't the same. And if men had to go through this and it was their brains changed, we would have a lot a more lot conversation, a lot more research. At menopause. Yeah. Well, estrogen and, and language are linked. So when mm-hmm. a woman goes into menopause, your estrogen changes and that ability to access language the same way shifts. And so actually um, dictating for me is better now because I don't read language in the same way. I feel like I have more of an engineer brain. So I have to tell myself the story versus feeling mm. it all. But it's allowed me, and the good thing about dictation is you can walk and talk, and the walking helps actually trigger language. So I'm a former teacher, and in a lot of schools, they would have kids have more PE sessions or getting up and walking around as they learn things because it helped them retain the information better. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. wish I could get in a car and drive and dictate, but what I have to do is pace or move, and then the language comes back. Mm-hmm. 
not not nothing that anybody asked but i just think since we're talking about friendship and and the craft a lot of of people when you say where what happened to that writer where did she go she hit menopause wow because i think things change Mm -hmm. i honestly never realized that that's fascinating i thought for years my career and that's actually part of why Tuli came i thought my career was over like there might not be any more books but i love this world i love my writers i love stories i I don't want any other world. So what do I do with myself if I won't be able to write anymore? And I thought, Mm -hmm. okay, I will support other writers. But through supporting the other writers, I began to go, oh, I have an idea. And that was also why the stories with my friends, I was writing novellas. I thought, I'll go shorter. I'll take it. But part of it, I I realized was you have to kind of get through it. And then I began to get stronger again. But it it was five, seven years. Um, In fact, these... Berkeley books, my first big books in seven years, simply because I didn't trust myself that I could carry a story. And I was grieving a difference in who my brain was. This is incredible. And thank you for being so honest about this, because it's it's the first time I've heard people talk about these things. And I just think it's really important. But throughout all of this journey with all of your success, where do all of your ideas come from? Because Obviously, you come up with fresh new ideas all the time and you keep it running. Where do each of you get your ideas from? I wish there was a store, but yeah. Um, <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? I, don't, I would run that store. <laughs> right? That'd be a great store. I mean, there are, I guess we call them libraries but uh, or bookstores. But I think you just, I don't, I don't think ideas for me don't come from any one place. It's a snatch of conversation or you hear a song or you had a fight with somebody and you're recasting it in your head later and you're thinking, well, I would say this, that, and that, and that becomes sort of character for me. Everything's about, starts from the characters and sort of, you know, wells up from there. So the more you think about, well, what if he was like this and who would be the actual worst person in the entire world that he'd be so angry if he fell in love with? I like that one a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I have found I've been enjoying these older heroines because it feels very fresh space for me. Um, being my age and looking at my different friends where they are. And some are married, um, some are widowed, some are divorced. And, you know, for flirting with 50, I actually didn't want to write this one. I did not, but I had people from the film side putting a lot of pressure on me. And so I ended up writing a story that I struggled with. And to finally dig in, I looked about and for those who were not married, I said, you know, why won't you even date? Because I have friends that I will never, ever date. And she's beautiful and brilliant. And she just said, I, I cannot compromise ever again. And marriage has compromises. I can't go there. And I thought it was really interesting. And so for me, then that idea was what kind of person would it take? It was almost a pretty perfect person in some ways, but what would it take to even want to go out to dinner or want to go out. And so I think like Megan, sometimes a conversation or it's that thing around you, whether it's a thorn in your side or an argument. It can also be a place. I went, I went visiting a friend of mine in um, the Midwest, um, which I know, and I'm such a, I was raised on the East coast, live on the West coast. I was so sort of like flyover States, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, well, you're an idiot. So then I went to visit her and learn. And she took me, she took me all around um, sort of outside of St. Louis into the countryside there and around sort of like around all these rivers and into Illinois. And I, we ended up in a city I had never heard of, I'm embarrassed to say, called St. Charles. And we were there on Halloween. 
And we were wandering around, and it was very spooky, and it's this old river town that's been there forever. I mean, I think it was settled in 1760s or something, so it's very old. You think, oh, there's nothing old except on the East Coast. That's not true. It was a little outpost for the French, I believe. And so it was settled there on this river, and we started saying, like, what, well, what if there were witches in the alleyways? And so then she and I um, <laughs> came up with this whole... We, we created a new writing name when we write these books together. The first one's coming out this fall. We um, are writing this whole series of, they're called Witch Lore, based on, yeah, based on just wandering around this river town on Halloween. Um, it's, really gonna, it's really fun. So you just never know where these things are going to come from. It is an amazing first book. Oh, yeah. I love it. It's one of the best books I've read in years and years. And um, yeah. I couldn't oh, believe my friends I wrote it. it. I didn't write the whole thing. So I'm like, it's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> Megan, what, uh, can you tell us the name you're writing that under? Oh yeah. So that is, um, that, is, that whole series is written by Hazel Beck. And the Hazel first one is Beck. called, okay. um, small town, big magic. Ooh, I love that. I can't wait to read it. It'll be it. out August 23rd. Oh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. You have so many books coming out. So transitioning into talking about, <sighs> just briefly about your individual books that are right on the horizon. Um, Jane, I know you mentioned Flirting with 50, which is coming out next week. Um, And I know Flirting with 40 was a very personal book for you that reflected some of your real life. Can you tell us a little bit about Flirting with 50 and whether there are some real life ties or some real pieces of you in that book also? You know, there's not as much of me at all. In fact, a lot of my readers are like, oh, I can't wait. And I keep saying it's, it's a totally different world, different situation, different characters. I think the biggest part is the friendship aspect. Uh, the friend I who inspired the story when I finally got my head around it is someone who I've been friends with since I was 15, and we both grew up in the same small Central California farm town. And I think knowing someone when you're 15 and then working with them again when you're in your 50s is, is a really a, a freeing thing. But at the same time, um, there's a certain pressure there. You, it's just an interesting. You have it's almost like having a sister where you don't always have that filter. And so I've loved writing about women's friendships. I I really do, and I think it's the thing that often sustains us in difficult times. And so for me, even though it's romance, there's very strong secondary characters. So I almost think of it as a mainstream story with you know, a lot of romance or it's romance, but with this world building, cause she has three adult, young adult daughters. Um, he's, he looks like Hugh Jackman in my mind, but he's an Australian scientist. It's such a good book. I, yeah, I love, <laughs> but I, I, I think it's this idea too. I am 58. I don't feel like an old lady or a grandma or a silver haired anything. So when I went to write Mm -hmm. this, I was really pushing back against this notion that 50 or 60 looks like a certain thing and that love would feel a certain way. Love feels like love. And I didn't want it to be, in fact, the art department had given me this gorgeous cover and then they changed their mind to the sales and said, no, we want her to look older. And I said, excuse me, she just turned 50. And they said, yes, but we need to appeal to the blank, re- you know, people going to this one store. And I'm like, no, I, I'm almost 60 and I'm not covered in wrinkles and gray hair. I mean, please. And I, what does 50 look like? I'm 50. Well, that's yeah, it. Like, I, had to get, I had to get a Holly Root, my agent. And they said, please help me because I'm distressed. What are they going to do to the 58 year old heroine? If you're making 50 look like 65 or 70. So I think it's an yeah. interesting idea. 
And I think most of sales, I shouldn't say this, are still run by men in publishing. And I didn't, mm-hmm. I really struggled with this idea of what a woman is supposed to look like and act like and love mm-hmm. like. And, mm-hmm. oh, I'll get some fiery. But women have been told by other women or society. Well, how many times, Jane, have you heard like, oh, a woman in our age shouldn't even have long hair? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, okay, then don't grow your hair. <laughs> it's just important to me that we women get to keep encouraging each other, reminding each other all the way to the very, very end that we're amazing and we can still have anything Mm -hmm. and everything. It's never too late. It's never too late. And I feel so strongly. And maybe that's because I didn't come into myself until 40. And I have learned through my adult female friends like Megan, um, I can be anyone I want to be. And I wasn't told that until I was 40. I was, I was never given permission to really just be. And it took other friends kind of echoing, like like my husband, Ty, and then Megan, uh, both saying, you know, you know, where is this? Why don't more girls and women get this back in life? You know, why isn't mm-hmm. there more support for us? And mm-hmm. so... I don't know. I'm, I'm, I've got, I've got my whole mission thing for the next 20, 30 years. Got to write those stories. I call it the ministry of Jane. The ministry of Jane. You are a woman. You can be whatever you want to be. I love that. I love it. So do I. Now, Megan, it's your turn. You have a new book coming out next week under your pen name, Caitlin Cruz. And I think it's a Harlequin presents book called reclaiming his ruined princess. Can you tell us about One that? It's coming out next week. Is that what it's? It's like it's crowning his lost princess next week. And that's oh. actually my 75th book for Harlequin, which is crazy. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah um, which is, that's, that's really exciting. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a duet, uh, which is when you write uh, just two linked books, which is not the way. It, so, you know, it, sometimes it's a very loose link. Um, so in this case, um, the, cause then the one I have coming out the following month is the one that's, um, reclaiming his ruined princess so it's these this these two girls who were switched at birth you know obviously as you do um and one (laughs) is the princess of a foreign land and one is a farm girl from kansas so the princess is raised as a farm girl from kansas and then the girl who was raised as a princess discovers like guess what you're in fact not the royal princess you got to go so we sort of explore through them falling in love with these different men one named of course Cayetano because why not and the other one named I think something I think it's Rainieri or something I just I am never satisfied unless it's an absolutely ridiculous name that my dictation software cannot cannot cope with at all so (laughs) so I give them crazy names and they fall in love yep so that's my next two books and then as I said I have that Hazel book Hazel Beck book coming out uh, at the end of August and then actually the second book in my Alaska series that I'm currently doing with Berkeley is coming out, I think, in September as well. It's called Reckless Fortune. And that's actually as M.M. Crane because they just so many names. <laughs> I is, is that like a new a new name or? Um, it was a sort of name that if you knew that my name was Megan Crane already, which was the name that was on my previous series with Berkeley, which was um, more romantic suspense based in Alaska. You would probably guess okay. that this was also me. It's more more of a sales thing, just sort of a publishing thing to give it a little bit of a different name so it could get better positioning in Walmart. Yeah. How do you keep them all straight? <laughs> I don't. People will come up to me and start talking about a book. And I'm like, that sounds like a great book. Who wrote that? And like you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fantastic. <laughs> no wonder. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Well, ladies, it has been so nice to have this time to talk with you. Before we go, can you tell listeners out there where they can find you and what you're up to? Jane, do you want to start? All right. Well, I'm Jane Porter. And so website's Jane Porter, email's Jane at Jane Porter. And I say that because I love hearing from readers. I always answer. I'm not that author who won't answer. I'm like, oh, please talk to me. And then I can write an email instead of a book today. <laughs> but I'm on Facebook and Instagram probably as author Jane Porter. So I'm and my books, all the new Penguin books should be at Walmart, at Barnes and Noble online. And I've been told that if your local bookstore doesn't have it, just re- ask them and they should be able to order it in. And hopefully it's in your libraries. And if it's not there, ask your library to ask them to order it in as well. And we will. Megan Crane, you can find me anywhere. Facebook, Instagram, website. Please email me. Follow me anywhere. I'm happy. I'll talk to anybody. I really, I respond to all comments on Facebook and everything else. So easy to find. That's awesome. (laughs) And that's Megan Crane and Jane Porter. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you both for joining us. We love celebrating friendship here on the podcast. It's in our very name. And and I can tell even from this conversation how deep and strong your friendship runs and how much it means to both of you. So thank you for sharing all that with us. You've both had incredible careers. We look forward to all these things that you have coming out and, and what you do next, because I think it's endless and it feels like it's just starting. There's probably hundreds of books coming this year alone. I, right. I'm, I'm anticipating. <laughs> That's right. These numbers are just going to grow. That would be grow. Megan. I would have two or three. Yeah. But <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. And Kristen, what an absolute joy to get to yeah. spend some time with you. But let's, but let's try to do that in person. All three I, of us be great. Absolutely. Figure it 100% out. yes. <laughs> to all of you out there, we hope that you'll dive into Jane's Flirting with 50, Megan's Lost Princess Scandal series, and everything else these two incredible authors have coming down the pipe. Thanks again to Jane Porter and Megan Crane, and thanks to all of you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. If you're enjoying our conversations, please tell a friend. We'll see you next time. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Charleston Coffee Roasters, for their generous support. Show our sponsors some love by following them on Facebook and Instagram and subscribing to their email newsletter. Remember to use the code COFFEEWITHFRIENDS for 20% off bagged coffees at Charleston Coffee Roasters. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.